Three, two, one. Hello, and welcome to Securities by Lux Capital. I'm your host, Danny Crichton. This is the second and final part of our discussion with Jonathan Haidt on his recent Atlantic article and forthcoming book on what he has dubbed the post-Babel world. In part one, we discussed Haidt's theory of America's structural stupidity, which has been driven by the pervasive use of toxic social media, and how the Tower of Babel is a metaphor for why Americans can no longer talk to one another. In this second part, we discuss potential solutions to the problem. I'm joined by Josh Wolf, and Josh, let's kick it off. So when we think about fixes for this, mm-hmm. part of this is diagnosing what seems to be in part a generational issue, that a lot of this is coming from what you call the coddling of the American mind, that people were, for whatever reason, kept indoors, uh, void of conflict, void of confrontation. I mean, when I grew up in Coney Island, Brooklyn, which was maybe not your average place, you know, I grew up in a screaming household, the Jewish screaming household, and lots of conflict and lots of confrontation. And you just, you learn to develop a thick skin and focus on what matters. There is something with this younger generation. I'd hate to sound like a, you know, okay, boomer, <laughs> but there is something that is palpably different. Yes. So, yes. Yeah, so it's, it's two separate problems that connect. A lot of what we've been talking about here is being done by, by you know, uh, Gen X and baby boomers on, on Twitter and Facebook as well. So, you know, all of us, beca- not all of us, but within all the generations, people are behaving badly because of this. But there is a special problem that's been caused to Gen Z, that is uh, anyone born after 1996 or so. And that is that they suddenly uh, have much higher rates of depression, anxiety, self-harm, and suicide. And I've never seen graphs like this. The graphs are fairly flat in the early 2000s up until about 2010, 2011, 2012. Sometime in that three-year period, you get hockey sticks. You get these sharp upward curves. And the increases are not small. It's not 10 or 20%. It's 50 to 150%. And they're often bigger for girls. Something happened to the mental health of America's kids, and it makes them fragile and anxious. And this is part of what we saw on campus. At the same time Greg was saying weird things are happening, every counseling center in America was saying, we're flooded. We, we don't have enough therapists. All of a sudden, it wasn't like this in 2012, but by 2015, every appointment was booked. They, they could not find enough therapists because we had a wave of depressed, anxious young people. And when people are anxious and depressed, they, they look out at the world and they don't see things as opportunities. They see things as threats. So if a professor says something, if a speaker is coming to campus, if a book is assigned, it's not an opportunity, it's a threat. And that's when, again, the academic world really changed. And then a few years later, Greg and I published our article in 2015. A lot of people said, oh, come on, it's just college students. They'll grow out of it. They can't do this in the real world. I'm just saying corporate America has largely accommodated them just as we accommodated them in universities and just as we've been accommodating kids. And so you had this cohort graduate, and I Mm -hmm. remember talking to you years ago, and you had a hypothesis that it was possible that these people, these people, this this group, our kids, (laughs) our kids, were were going to go from college graduates to 22 to entering the workforce Mm -hmm. and take this sensibility with them yes that's and, right and that it would start in some of the most um uh frequent hiring uh employers the uh, media and marketing roles uh, uh newspapers and, and tv and then go into corporate in the investing world which is something mm-hmm. that i think has been observable yes that's right so greg and i published the book in 2018 we had to stop writing in the spring of 2018 and I wanted us to have a chapter on, uh, on what happens when this comes into the corporate world. You know, I teach in a business school, and I'd begun hearing stories in 2018, but we only had a few anecdotes. And so we decided, oh, okay, we don't have enough for a chapter. So we closed up the book, we submitted the manuscript, 
And then beginning really in fall of 2018, you suddenly start hearing a lot more stories about generational conflicts, about, about how young workers, you know, oh, you know, I'm, I'm anxious. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to, I know I don't want to come into work tomorrow. I can't make this deadline. Just expecting accommodations, just a much greater sense of threat in the workplace and a much greater willingness to take the activism that they did in college into a company. Uh, when you graduate from college, everything's been about you. Everyone's investing in you. And you have to make the transition to saying, okay, now I'm an employee. I have to generate value for my employer. It's not all about me. In any case, we've seen an explosion of this kind of, exactly the same kinds of conflict we had on campus from 2015 to 2018. Since 2018 have been very, very widespread in the corporate world, especially Slack seems to be the preferred medium by which a lot of these conflicts play out. You know, I teach in a bit in, at Stern, and in the business and society program, we're all fans of stakeholder capitalism. Uh, you know, we think Milton Friedman's original article about the business, social responsibility of business to, to increase its profits. Like, no, you have to think about all your other stakeholders. Well, the Business Roundtable in 2019 renounced the Friedman Doctrine and said, actually, yes, you know, business should be thinking about all the stakeholders. Well, that happened in 2019, just in time for the complete, total, all-encompassing, constant war among stakeholders. Uh, and so, you know, now the business world is a, is a mess, not in all industries, as you say, it's especially the industries that are hiring from elite schools, the industries that are more in the creative zone, you know, anything to do with the arts or media, uh, and a lot of tech, not all of tech, but a lot of tech companies. Part of me wonders if there's any correlation with the incredible bull market run we've had an economic uh, run we've had for the past 10 or 15 years. And that if and as there's a downturn, do some of these trends exacerbate because stress is going to be higher or do they abate and does the pendulum swing the other way? And, and I'm talking almost conflating a little bit some of the Gen Z sense of entitlement. I had posted something on Twitter recounting a story of a friend who had an interview with a, a younger person and that person showed up at 10.06 and uh, they checked with the front desk, you know, what time did they check in? You know, maybe they were late, maybe they texted, maybe they called or whatever. No, and they or sorry, they showed up at 10.08 and they checked in with the front desk at 10.05. I said, how was this person? They said, amazing. I said, are you hiring them? They said, not a chance because they felt very strongly that somebody that's interviewing for an important high paying job should show up on time. The response on Twitter, half the people who typically uh, skewed older were like, of course, you know, 15 minutes uh, early, you're on time, 15 uh, on time, you're late and, and uh, 15 minutes late, you're fired. The other half were like, my God, this candidate dodged a bullet. What, what kind of, <laughs> what kind of, you know, oppressive, you know, horrible person are they going to be working for? And I just wonder, and I've been sort of provocatively saying that in the next six months or nine months, by the fall of this year, you're going to see kids under 30 in suits and ties back in Midtown, you know, trying to signal uh, conformity and that they're gainfully employed. So I, I wonder if some of this would abate if in self-interest, suddenly the economy, you know, we hit a recession, stocks are down, and some of the young people that are acting very entitled and, you know, suddenly like, oh, okay, actually, maybe I have to conform. Hmm. I think that is possible. Uh, also, let's be clear that what we see, like our, pub, our perceptions are shaped by who is speaking up on social media, and that is never representative of the, of the larger population. Uh, and so what I found from the beginning is that most members of Gen Z, most students have spoken at a lot of schools, a lot of high schools. Most of them are curious. They want to be exposed to a wide variety of ideas. It's a small number who have embraced this kind of activism, which is about slandering and slurring and attacking other people. And so most students are afraid of speaking up, because they're afraid of a small number of their fellow students. Many of us professors are walking on eggshells and we're, we're cautious in what we teach because we're afraid of a small number of students. Most of them are lovely. Most of them are curious. So I don't want to say that most of them feel entitled in the way that you were talking about, 
But I would say that they've been under-socialized, and they've been under-socialized for several reasons. Um, one is that, first of all, Gen Z is much less likely to have ever had a job than the millennials or any previous generation. They simply didn't have summer jobs as much. Um, you know, and part of that is that college has gotten more competitive, and so American families, middle-class families and above, it's like the point of childhood is to get you into an Ivy League school and wear the pit crew and, you know, no, don't waste your time, you know, uh, working for a boss, do this internship, which will look better. So they literally have had less life experience. They've had less mentoring. And um, I think it's very important that you work for a boss who who goes hard on you. That's what I want for my son this summer. He's 15 and he, he wants it too. He wants to just have a regular job, not an internship. So I, will things turn around? Gen Z, the surveys show that Gen Z is very concerned about economic stability. They, they understandably, they've been raised in a, you know, um, since the global financial crisis, uh, they're, they're, they're anxious. So I think many of them will. Yes, I think we will see many of them um, trying to get with the program. Now, here's, you know, here's my advice, I mean, to, especially if there are a lot of people listening to this who, who have their own companies or in the tech world. What I have found is that Gen Z is totally not in denial. They're not defensive. They know they have problems. They want to grow. They want to learn. And if you have the concept of anti-fragility, then everything goes smoothly. And so this and, is, and, and this is Taleb's idea that, uh, but, but let, let's explain that. What is anti-fragility? Yeah. So Nassim Taleb, uh, you know, who wrote the Black Swan, he writes this wonderful book called Anti-Fragile, and he points out that there are certain things that are fragile, like glass is fragile, so you don't let kids play, babies play with glass. We give them plastic. Plastic is resilient, uh, but if you drop a cup, it doesn't get better. And what he was interested in is what's the name for systems that were, where if you drop them, they get better. And he was thinking, for example, of the banking system. He, he wrote this, you know, he was thinking about this before the, before the crash. Um, you know, if a system hasn't been stressed, it gets weak. But if it has been stressed, it adapts and it gets strong. And that's true whether it's uh, forest fires or muscles in the body. Exactly. And, of course, the immune system. Now we're all so familiar with the immune system being anti-fragile. And if we protect our kids from dirt and germs, we actually make them weak. They have to be exposed to dirt and germs. Uh, this is why peanut allergies have exploded. It's, it's because we started protecting kids from peanuts in the 1990s. So once you have the concept of anti-fragility and you explain that and everyone in Gen Z gets it right away and everyone gets it right away. And if you were to say to people, okay, I want you to, you know, say to your new, your new hires who have been on social media their whole lives. They haven't had summer jobs. They've been overprotected their whole lives. They're soft. They're inexperienced. It's not their fault. There's no reason to be angry. And you say to them, I really want you to succeed in this job. And that's why I'm going to give you hard feedback. If I think you did something wrong, I'm going to tell you. I'm not doing it because I'm mad at you. I'm doing it because I want you to grow. If you, if you make clear the point of anti-fragility and growth, a lot of them really get it and love it and want it. So I haven't yet found a company that really has figured out how to incorporate Gen Z and is doing well. But then again, the pandemic has confused us all. We, ha we don't know what's happening yet. But I think we're now in a time where we can really see what do you do to incorporate your workers who are under 25? I'm, I'm really caught by that uh, peanut analogy because denying exposure exacerbates sensitivity. And that's true of peanuts and that's true of difficult conversations and difficult situations. That's right. So uh, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler did research on, I think it was the Framingham Heart Study Database, this large database of health, health uh, outcomes in New England in the, in the 80s or 90s, I think. I'm not sure when it was. At any rate, they have a wonderful book called Connected, and they show that, you know, if you take up smoking, your friends are more likely to take up smoking, but so are your friends' friends, and so are your friends' friends' friends. 
Now, it's hard to believe, but they do find third level, third order effects. And I think it was the same thing with uh, obesity. Yep, and exactly. Same with obesity. But here's the thing relevant for us now. Same with happiness and sadness. Mm. Same with emotions. And it's more contagious from girls, from women, I should say, than from men. When a man is depressed, it doesn't make other people depressed because men don't talk about it. Whereas if a woman is depressed, she's more likely to talk about it. And so that'll spread more. And so what we, what we see then is that when, when all the kids got onto um, social media, uh, around, you know, around 2011 to 2013 is the period when American kids go from mostly not having a smartphone to now, they, now it's like you have to have one and everyone's got one. So when they all um, have these devices in their pockets, the boys go especially for YouTube and video games. The girls go for the, the visual platforms. They go for Instagram and Tumblr and Pinterest. Those are the three that are mostly female. And so the girls are now spreading ideas and emotions and you get extraordinary contagion among the girls. Whereas boys are playing video games and watching videos, you don't get that kind of contagion. And I think this is why the curves, the mental health curves for girls, the rates of anxiety and depression just skyrocket. I mean, it's like, it's like dum da dum da dum no change, no change, no change, 2013, boom. It, it, I've never seen anything like it. I still am thinking about how technology amplifies everything. It's amplifying our voices right now, broadcasting. It's mm -hmm. amplifying the ability to um, see something, visualize it. And as you are noting uh, very crisply that it amplifies emotions. And I'm still trying to grasp for how technology can be a mm -hmm. helpful, productive, constructive salve for that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Cause right. Cause it seems whatever product is out there, someone can find a way to make it faster, easier, or, you know, like bigger, like bigger effect. But is there, is there the same kind of evolution for better? Like, why can't there be platforms that give us better social interactions? I mean, even if you take this technology, I will call it, of CBT and DBT, mm -hmm. and Marshall Linehan, and I mean, it's, it's an amazing set of tactics, as you noted, from mm -hmm. the early Stoics, and uh, incorporated into modern clinical uh, psychology and, and psychiatry. I wonder if there's something that's a layer on the information that we get that could detect when there's something that is being labeled or to just raise to our awareness uh, mm -hmm. so as to give us that little pause, just like the framers of the Constitution wanted. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I see where you're going with that, but I, I think that- You are not optimistic. <clears throat> no, I'm not because, because it's like, you know, it's like we could give people calorie counts. Right. You know, and we can tell them, this, you know, this, this Big Mac has this ingredient and therefore you shouldn't have it or something. But if what's operating is not like the rational thought about what I want, but a deeper set of motives about just like the lust for fat and sugar and salt, it's very hard to have our, our rational mind go up against right. that, especially when you're a kid. Just to be provocative in the ideas of, you know, uh, constructive ideas and criticism. You noted in your piece, you know, that social media essentially bad, especially social media based on advertising. And then you sort of half jokingly when I retweeted it and it helped. Oh, to, yeah, that's right. You had the you're like, OK, idea. not all social media is bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I'm thinking about the fact that, you know, lots of people had body image issues, you know, and people mm -hmm. were talking about this around uh, magazines. Right. You had all these uh, supermodels that were not representative of the average male or female. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about how our natural propensity for sugar and fat in our evolutionary ancestral environment when it was scarce and now it's abundant and we, you know, are drinking lots of sugar. And at the same time, you have all of these people who are like fitness nuts today. And there's a social contagion around the people that are involved in CrossFit and Instagram. So so there holds this glimmer the sliver of hope that maybe there can be positive contagion with good things and, and so if we can do that physically where people seem to me 
to be more fit than ever, uh, that, that maybe there's a mental fitness that people can broadcast in the same way that you're getting status today for, you know, being the provocateur, that somehow, oh, okay, you sit with Danny Kahneman, and he loves saying that he's wrong because he views that as the archetype of a great scientist, somebody that admits that they're wrong and changes their mind. And so he feels that he actually gains, not loses status by doing that. I'm wondering if there's a way that we could amplify and create a social contagion where the people that are rewarded and celebrated are the ones that can refrain from the, you know, the angry reactions. And the- I see what you're saying. Okay, this sounds, this sounds promising. Now, I would note that Danny Kahneman is an academic, and within the world of professors, uh, going all the way back to Socrates, who, who in a sense boasted that he didn't know anything, within our, the norms of our closed community, yes, you gain status by saying you right. don't know. It may be harder to do that in the general public. But what you were saying, it actually made me think, there are a lot of things we've faced as a society, like alcohol, you know, marijuana. There are also things we've faced. It took us a long time to adapt. And you know, when I was in high school in the 70s and 80s, like a lot of kids died in drunk driving. I mean, it was, it was a major cause of death was car accidents from alcohol. And now it's not. Like, it's way, way down. Like, we, we, we learned how to adapt to that. It took a while. Is that because shame worked? Does shame still work? Did we shame people? Because, you know, it was, I remember Mothers Against Drunk Driving, yeah, Don't yeah. Drink and Drive. You had these campaigns. But it became socially taboo that if you did that, Mm-hmm. People were going to scoff at you and look down on you, not celebrate you. Yeah, that may be. I, I'd want to see a, 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 like an historian's account of how exactly did the norms change? Because mm. ultimately the norms changed. And it, be, and it was a sort of a national change. And in the same way, right now, you know, social media is so new and everyone's gone for it or most people have gone for it. And it may be the case that in 20 years, we will have worked out a way to live with it without having to do so much damage to kids. Now, going with the Mothers Against Drunk Driving, I mean, they raised the age to 21. You know, when I was, when I was in high school, it was 18. And as long as you looked 15, you could go into a bar with a fake ID and say, you know, and I, I had a fake ID. It said City College of Arts and Crafts. I bought it in Coney Island, actually. My hometown. I bought it in Coney Island yeah. for a dollar, and I filled, type, filled it in on a typewriter. <laughs> um, and people would see it, they'd laugh. So yes, I, you know, there may be a future in which we adapt to it. Now, my concern is that one, the political chaos and the generational damage may be so severe that even though in theory we could figure out a better way to be, we might get tripped up, we might not be able to get there. And two, um, it used to be possible to change norms nationally, and that's the pre-Babel world. After the Tower of Babel has fallen, I don't think it's possible to have anything that most people really will believe or embrace. Yeah, your next book is called Life After Babel, Adapting to a World We May Never Again Share. John, what are the reforms that you have contemplated could actually fix this problem, particularly with social media? Yeah, so at the end of the article, I say, you know, it's going to be really hard to, to reimagine democracy for the digital age, but if we're going to do it, there's going to be three, three categories that we've got to do, three, three sort of buckets of reform. The first is we've got to harden our democratic and epistemic institutions. Epistemic just means the, those that generate knowledge, like universities, journalism. The second is we have to make social media less toxic to those institutions. And the third is we have to prepare the next generation to live in this crazy and probably much more violent democracy. Let's take the second one. Okay, yeah, that's, I think that's the, yeah, that's the one of most relevance, I think, to, to, to your audience. Um, so in the, in the second one, what I proposed is first, let me be clear. 
please, everyone, stop talking about content moderation. Please stop it. Please stop it. I'm so sick of it. It's not that important. And there's no solution because the left wants more of it and the right wants less of it. And so we're not going to get a bipartisan compromise. And, and that's not where the action is. The problem on social media is not that somebody can post some crazy, terrible conspiracy theory. They've been doing that for hundreds of years. The John Birch Society was doing that. Um, there's all kinds of places you can do that. But before 2009, that thing couldn't go viral to millions of people within a few days. It's the architecture that has made it so that the more obnoxious you are and the more outrageous your statement, the further it goes. That's the problem. It's not content moderation. It's the dynamics and the virality. So there's two sets of reforms that I think are really powerful. One um, is... Uh, is look at who is posting. Now, it's, you can't walk up to a bank and say, here's a bag of money, open an account for John Q. Smith. Anonymity. Anonymity, yeah, you can't, you, banks have know your customer laws. And I think large platforms, not small ones, not everything, but at least a large platform, which has enormous effects on our, on our democracy, a large platform should have a know your customer rule, where it doesn't mean that you have to show your driver's license to Facebook. But before, so let's say, let's suppose anyone can open an account just to view, to see what other people are saying. But if you want to have the right to post content, you have to get verified as a human being who's old enough to use the platform. And you maybe show your identity as well. Of course, you can always post anonymously, but you have to get verified. And so suppose you get, you get kicked over to a third party. There's actually a bunch of companies that now do age, do age and identity authentication. There are a lot of ways of doing it. But you get kicked over to, to another company or a nonprofit and they do whatever, you know, whether it be through identification, whether it be through biometrics, whether it be through a network of trust using blockchain, there's all kinds of clever ways to do it. They then pass back to Facebook, yes, approved. This person is a real person who's over 18 or whatever age you want to, you want to set. That would eliminate almost all of the bots right away. And that would also control some of the trolls, even though many trolls use their real names. Um, if there's even that little level of accountability, people will not be quite as much of a, of a jerk. Um, and basically, look, when, you know, when Elon, when it looked like he was going to buy Twitter, he was saying authenticate all humans. So, you know, Elon's already most of the way there. Um, so that would be huge if we had a, authentication. Um, and then the other one, another one that I was just talking about with Reed Hoffman a couple of weeks ago, um, I've always been thinking right now, the incentives are the more of an asshole you are, the more successful you are. But what if we reverse that? What if we say, what if, what if you have uh, like Facebook and Twitter code your degree of aggression. And so if all you do is attack people, if all you do is use obscenity and exclamation points, you get a five on a one to five scale. You're, you as a user, you're coded as five. And everybody who opens an account, your filter is set by default to four. So I will see everybody who's one to four, but I, I, won't, I won't see anyone who's a five and they can't see me. They can say what they want. I'm not telling them they can't say something, but why should my public square be full of assholes? Um, if I if I want to eliminate the fives, I should be able to do that. Which is a great idea because whether that's a restaurant or an Uber driver, you know, you, you typically yeah. want a highly rated person. Well, that's exactly no. that's right. That's right. So if so if we simply did that, now of course you could lower it. You could set your filter to three or two or what you could set it for whatever you want. Now all of a sudden the incentive is don't be a complete asshole. Uh, if you're a complete asshole, fewer people will see you. Like I think that would be completely transformative. And I, so I raised this with, with, with Reed and he, he liked it. You know, so he and I have been talking about it. What, what do you think? What do you guys think? Would that work? I, I think it's uh, very clever. I think the rating systems have worked in all kinds of content for signaling to 
people that are producing content, what works. And so, uh, you know, Netflix obviously has their algorithms to see when people are watching. And then when more people are watching, they try to dial up that kind of content. You would think that if there was a feedback mechanism for a speaker or writer, et cetera, where they were getting more feedback that said, yes, you're getting a bigger audience because of that, uh, it would increase their provision of that kind of content. I guess you still would get, although it would be siloed to, or as you were saying before, the sort of, you know, 20% fringe on both sides, or maybe the 2% fringe yeah, of, 2%. of that fringe, that, uh, you know, you're going to get the firebrand, you know, bombastic, sensationalist, mm. but uh, the audience that wants that will self-select for it and dial up their meter to mm -hmm. five and, and go into the eco chamber. Yeah. And then you have to find a way to make sure that they can't share that information. That's the thing is like share what meaning if, if you become the firebrand, you know, and you're just the asshole and I say, no, I don't want to hear from the assholes, but you know, you've got a five rating and I'm not, but then if I put my rating filter up to five, now I'm getting your content. Mm -hmm. I have to, there has to be a filter on my ability to share a five with the oh. rest of the world. Oh, I see. Although, of course, if you share that content, then that might impact your rating. And let's be clear. And actually your example of firebrand is an important one. I hadn't thought of that. Somebody who is righteously indignant indignant about racism or global warming, we want to make sure that this doesn't pick up that. Um, it has to basically pick up trollishness there. there, And so to the extent that we can, you know, define trollishness, and actually that's what AI is great for. You don't have to have a formal definition. It's just, you know, if you can identify though, you know, one to 3% of people who are like this, um, and you want to be sure to distinguish it from somebody who is just, you know, angry uh, about, you know, or a, a firebrand. I mean, you know, certainly the, the Old Testament prophets uh, in the later books of the of the Hebrew Bible. We don't want to, you know, keep keep them. The out. The, the, the passionate versus the uh, outright the jerk. Yeah, exactly. yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think that's very clever. I like that one. Okay, so even if so, look, even if that that itself doesn't work, you know, the tech community is so creative, and if if I simply put it out there, like, you know what, we have to find ways to make to make these platforms less toxic to our democratic and epistemic institutions. I just gave you an example with the one to five rating. Can you all do better? Can you come up with something, something other? Please go at it. It really comes down to incentives because as a friend of ours says, you know, social media inherently good. Social media based on advertising, inherently bad. Mm. And it's really about the incentives for the engagement. And as you noted, to get the evocative emotional response. But if there is a counter system, whether it was a regulatory one or a uh, consumer led uh, campaign to self-regulate some of this content, I think it would be a, a great benevolent thing. From your mouth to God's ears, as my grandmother used to say. Or Zucks. <laughs> yes, to Zucks ears. Thanks, John. It's great to be with you. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Danny. Thanks.